good day to be in the house of God. Amen? Amen. So I thought that by having 17 baptisms earlier in the service, I was going to be a little bit more emotionally in this moment. And I'm going to tell you, I find myself overwhelmed with what God has been doing recently. I know that it seems like we're seeing incredible things each and every week, but just to give you all just a little bit of a glimpse of this, I just took a moment, and I shared it with the early morning crowd, I took a moment to look over just statistics of the last two months, June and July, and we have seen 103 professions of faith and 86 baptisms in the last two months. So as we were preparing for this, and we knew 17 baptisms were going to be shown this morning, and Dan was editing and getting things ready, and he was like, I think I've got it to about 9 minutes and 45 seconds. Is that okay? Here's my thought. When you don't have time to show baptism, something's wrong in the church. Amen? I praise God for what he is doing in this place. So our focus in this series is undivided. That is our title for the entire series that starts today. And this morning, we are going to begin a series that explores how wisdom and spiritual maturity allows a person to be undivided. That is, there is no division between their beliefs and their behavior, between their convictions and their actions, between who they want to be and who they actually are. So today, we begin a verse-by-verse study of the book of James. And easily within this study, there will be 30, 40, 50 or more messages in this series. And if that scares some of you, then let me try to put your heart at ease. I do not plan to preach 30, 40, or 50 messages in a row from the book of James. But very likely what we're going to do is we're going to work through chapter 1. We're going to come out. We're going to address a number of other topics, maybe a month and a half, two months. We will go back in chapter 2, and we will work our way through the book of James. And if the Lord tarries and if God gives us grace, then somewhere 2027, 2028, we'll finish this book. (laughs) So I'm going to give you from the very beginning my top four reasons why I'm excited about going through the book of James with you. And here's, and these are mine. I I got like 30, but these are my top four. But here's the first. James is a book of wisdom. Over the course of my life, I've gotten more and more excited about studying the wisdom books out of Scripture. We have three of them that are specifically dedicated to wisdom. There's the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then you go into the New Testament and you find the book of James. In case you're wondering, wisdom is simply the proper application of knowledge. It is how we have skillful living. It's how we navigate life well. Wisdom is not the same as being smart, being educated, or being knowledgeable. In fact, you'll find that there's a lot of very educated, smart people who do not live with wisdom. And at the same time, there's a lot of people who are wise that didn't even get a chance to finish high school or pursue education beyond that. The idea of wisdom and knowledge and and education, all, all of these are important, but I don't know if you've noticed or not, but when you're talking to somebody with wisdom, you know it when you're talking to them. They might only say a couple of things, but what they say, it's 
focused, it's directed, it is what you need to hear to frame the moment, to make the decision, to choose the wise course of action. Being with somebody who is wise is absolutely wonderful. How many of you think we could all hang out with a little more wise people in our lives? Amen. I'd like to be a little more wise myself. The book of James helps us on that path. My second reason is James is a book of practical application. A common concern that a lot of believers share is that they can't necessarily relate to what the preacher is preaching or maybe what the Bible is saying. And whenever they're hearing Scripture, they'll say something like this, it's good, it's biblical, but it's not what I'm going through. It's not what I'm facing. I know it's right, but how does any of that apply to me? You will not have that concern in the book of James. James is so practical and so personal, it almost seems like he was reading your journal entries or talking with your best friend. It is so focused on where we live and how we struggle and what we need that every single week it's like, that's what I needed. How did God know that's what I needed? Next week, that's what I needed. How did God know that's what I needed? It's the same thing over and over. James is an incredibly practical book. Here's my third reason. James is a book of spiritual maturity. Like the other books that contain wisdom literature in your Bible, James addresses just an assortment of topics. It's fast-paced. It moves from one topic to the next. It goes from one problem people face to the next. But the one common element that holds all of these problems and issues together is spiritual immaturity. James is addressing a group, and he's He's concerned because they weren't growing up fast enough or at the right level to meet the needs that were facing them within culture. He uses the word perfect throughout the letter. It's found in chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 1, verse 25, chapter 2, verse 22, chapter 3, verse 2. He he keeps on talking about the word perfect, but he's not talking about perfect in the, the sense of being sinless. He's talking about perfect from being mature and complete and balanced and grown up. Spiritual immaturity is still a common issue within the church even to this day. We are more educated than we have ever been, specifically within the Church of America. And yet we are producing fewer mature disciples than we ever have. We need practical teaching on spiritual maturity. All too often, the church has become a daycare for spiritual infants instead of a training center for spiritual adults. We need to be concerned when believers are not growing around us. We need to be concerned when believers who've been walking with Jesus for five, seven, ten years cannot handle the meat of God's word and prefer milk. We need to be concerned with those things. James was concerned. That's why he's writing this book. Now listen to just a few of the topics that James specifically addresses. Believers were impatient in trials and they were overwhelmed in their problems. Chapter 1. Believers were talking truth, they just weren't living truth. Chapter 2, believers were not controlling their tongue. Chapter 3, believers were fighting with each other, and they were coveting what others had. Chapter 4, Christians were collecting material toys 
instead of focused on eternal matters in the mission at hand. Chapter 5. I don't know about you. That kind of sounds like what we're dealing with today. <laughs> Our mission. What, what's the mission? It is the redemptive mission of God. It's the gospel that Jesus set us out on. It is to make disciples of all the nations. Our mission requires maturity. In order to be engaged in the mission, Jesus calls us to deny self and to follow him. He calls us to lay down many times those comforts that we want to hold on to and walk in faith with what it looks like to follow him. In order to be about the mission, it requires us to be salt and light. In order to be about the mission, we have to be training disciples who train disciples. And these disciples need to love Jesus and be willing to live on mission with him. It requires maturity. I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I do think it's important along the way that we stop and we get in a current, up-close evaluation for where things are. If we're to look at this from a business perspective for just a moment, you might ask yourself, what business is the church in? We're in the redemptive business. We're in the disciple-making business. We're in business with the Father. And then ask yourself another question. How's business? Are we making disciples? Are we living on mission when you ask those questions, and, and please hear me, I, I'm talking about church primarily in the U.S. God is doing incredible things. I don't want to take away from that. I don't want to not look at that and praise God for it. I'm talking about overall, when you pick up the newspaper, when you read what's happening in the convention, when you see what's going on around the world, and you look at those things and ask the question, how's business? Business isn't that good on a much larger scale. Here's what I mean by that. Our college campuses are eating up our students who are Christian in name only. Our culture is devouring Christians who talk a good game. They just don't know how to live a righteous life. We've seen more in the last four, five, ten years of the enemy going after aggressively the home, going after marriage, going after the institution of the church, going after anything that smacks of godly, biblical, holiness values. Spiritual maturity is not an option. The, the stakes are too high for us. Our kids, our grandkids, our, our country, our world is on the line. We have to be about spiritual maturity. And here's number four. James is a book that leads to integrity, as being undivided. Throughout this series, you are going to hear me use the word integrity over and over again. Integrity is defined as firm adherence to a code of moral values, the quality or state of being complete or undivided. That's where this series title comes from. Somebody who has integrity is not divided between their beliefs and their behavior. They live what they believe, or maybe a better way of saying it is they live what they want to believe or profess to believe. There's no hidden agendas. There's no ulterior motives. They don't just talk a good game. They actually live a good life. 
A person who is in that state of integrity, they're undivided, that individual, they have a deeper sense of peace because there's not this internal tension of being inauthentic or hypocritical or phony in any way. They are in the light and they're undivided. What an amazing, wonderful way to live. James points out all the way through this letter the benefits of integrity. That is, personal integrity allows us to be a witness to the world. Pause there for just a moment. When we try to share what God's doing in our life and we're living a lie, the world can smell that fast. They want nothing to do with it. They're around that type of actions all, all too often. They want somebody who is going to say, God has changed my life and their life actually backs up the change. That's how you have an audience with the world. Personal integrity allows us to be a witness to the world. Spiritual integrity allows us to be right with God. According to James, it's only the person who walks with integrity that, listen to this, they can persevere in persecution, effectively resist temptation, respond obediently to God's word, overcome prejudice, produce good works, control the tongue, follow God's wisdom, consider God in all of their plans, depend on God rather than wealth, wait patiently for the return of the Lord, and make prayer, not personal effort, its spiritual resource. Isn't that what we would all hope and pray our lives would look like? James tells us how to live that life. He's going to point out that that life is found on a path of wisdom where truth is being applied as believers mature and when we live with integrity. When that happens, we are undivided. Or here's another way of saying it. What you see is what you get and what you get is what God wants. That's why I'm excited about this study. I invite you into the first verse. James chapter 1, verse 1. This last week I was settling in maybe around Wednesday or Thursday and I had 23 pages of manuscript left on verse number 1. And I was a little afraid of coming in and saying, today we're going to do part of verse number 1. So I've spent some time, we've got to condense, I believe we're on a good path here, but we're going to read chapter 1, verse 1. I'm speaking on undivided and this is simply the introduction. Here's what it says. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get into this text, God, we are absolutely desperate for your spirit to guide in truth, to help us to see where the points of application are, to live these truths in and through our lives. We, we need you to do what only you can do. We've already sung about that, God. We pray today that this would be another chapter of us seeing your hand at work in this church and in this nation and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So anytime we start a new book or a new series, and for that matter, even if I begin a message that we have come at it from a book that we've not been in in a while, it's always important we take a few moments to understand the context. 
We need to know who's the writer, who's the audience, what is the intended purpose in the setting. And in this particular book, all of that is found right there in verse number one. So let's work our way through those pieces. Let's begin with who's the writer, and we're going to spend the lion's share of our time today in this one section. Who's the writer? It's always good to consider the person. And the reason that's important is because you cannot separate the experiences, the teachings, and the story of that person with their writings. It's going to begin to come out. Many times, the more you know about the person, the more you understand their writings. Now, there's at least four different men in the New Testament by the name of James. Here they are very quickly. There is James, the son of Alphaeus. He was a disciple. Very little is known of him, and there are no indicators that he's the one writing this book. There's also James, the father of Judas, the disciple. Now, his life is even more obscure in Scripture. In fact, it's only mentioned Luke chapter 6, verse 16, when it says that Judas is called the son of James, there's that name, to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot. Nothing again indicates that's the writer of this book. Then there is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. He's also a disciple. He was a fisherman called by Jesus. And he and his brother were nicknamed sons of thunder by Jesus because of their impulsiveness. Great guy, colorful character. But again, there's nothing in Scripture that would indicate he's the one who was writing this letter. And then there is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Everything points to that James as the author of this letter. Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 6 refers to Jesus' half-brothers and half-sisters. Now, if the idea of Jesus having half-siblings seems a little bit strange to you, it's because they have the same mom. They did not have the same earthly father. If you'll remember your story, Jesus is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Theology is important, amen? Now, more than just a family connection to Jesus, which, by the way, that's more than enough to put James in the running for one of the most interesting people on the planet. But more than just that, he was the head of the Jerusalem church. This is the same James who presided over the Jerusalem council found over in Acts chapter 15. If you're not sure about that council, here's how important that group was. That was the group that convened to decide if salvation required obedience to the Mosaic law or if it was accomplished by grace through faith. It's this James who presided over that council. And listen, the wisdom he used, wisdom, key word, he's talking about wisdom. This is a man who in wisdom allowed people to share what's on their heart, and then he walks them through the word of God to help them understand truth. Praise God for the investment of James. Now, church tradition also tells us two more things. He has two other titles. He was called James the Just because of his righteous life. He was also called Old Camel Knees because of the calluses on his knees through prayer. Now, why would I even bring that up at this point? This is the same guy in chapter 5, verse 16, who says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. It's one thing to talk about righteousness. It's another thing to be known for righteousness. It's one thing to say prayer is important. 
it's another thing to have calluses on your knees because of the hours you spent on your knees in prayer. Hey, you know what he's doing? He's living with integrity. He can talk about these things because his beliefs and his life are backing it up. This is a man of integrity. Now, all of that is important information, helps us understand the writer, but also in his introduction, we understand a little bit more about this writer. Uh, when James introduces himself in verse number one, you'll notice he does not share any of those things that I just mentioned. He doesn't give us his spiritual resume. It, it, it's not like he comes out and he says, hey, I'm, I'm James. You might know my brother. It's Jesus. Here's my card. Oh, by the way, I'm pastor down at First Baptist Jerusalem, executive director over the Jerusalem Council. My nickname is James the Just, and did I show you my knees yet? You, you get none of that. Notice how he identifies himself. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that is? Humility. You can learn a lot about something even by how a person introduces themselves. The Greek language has two different words for slave or bondservant. There is doulos and there's also adra pagan. Uh, James describes himself as a doulos. A, a doulos is a slave who was deprived of all personal freedom and totally under the control of his master. The difference between the two words was the nature of the slavery itself. An Adrabagadon was made a slave. A doulos was born a slave. By virtue of his new birth in Christ, here's what James is saying. I was not made a slave by men. I was born a slave by the grace of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that many of the heroes of the faith, both Old and New Testament, also identified themselves as bondservants of God. In the Old Testament, we got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Isaiah, Daniel. New Testament, we have Epaphras, Timothy, Paul, Peter, and John. All of those have said, I am a bondservant of God. Why do I bring up all of those names? Listen closely. We desire and admire the way God used them. We do not desire and or admire the title that can be used. Bondservants. Totally yielded. I claim no rights, no special privileges. Totally at the use of God. It may surprise people to know that even though James and his siblings grew up with Jesus watching this sinless, perfect life, they did not believe that he was Messiah or God. And before we get upset with them, let me just say, if one of my siblings were to say they were Messiah or God, I wouldn't believe them either. And I got really good siblings. But here's the thing. John chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, it describes the fact that they didn't believe. In fact, the, the siblings come and they say, now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may say your works that you're doing. 
Then they go on to say, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Hey, during his earthly ministry, his own family struggled to believe his claims. But then we have an interesting verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. It's when the disciples are in the upper room and they're praying. And it says they're praying together, disciples, and it says also that Mary and his brothers were with them. What changed? What, what, what moved them from unbelief to belief? The Apostle Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, after the resurrection, he appeared to James. Listen, it's hard to argue with a sibling when they got up from the dead. That kind of seals a lot of the arguments there. So it's likely that that moment is what convinced James of the claims of Christ, and James was used to convince his brothers of the same. So here's the audience. This is very fast. We also find this in verse number one. It says that James is writing to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. The 12 tribes are a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jewish nation. Uh, dispersed abroad, it refers to anywhere outside of the region of Palestine. Over the years and through a series of battles and conquest and deportation, many of the Jews had relocated to places outside of that region. There's a Greek word that is very technical, is specifically of this. It's referred to as the diaspora. It's talking about those Jewish people who were outside of the region of Palestine. Well, James sends this letter not only to a Jewish crowd, but more specifically to Jewish Christians, or as some might say, Jewish believers or completed Jews. At least 19 times in this letter, he addressed them as brethren, indicating not only brothers in the flesh, talking about fellow Jews, but also brothers in the Lord. Now here's our setting and purpose, and we conclude from there. Many of these believers had fled the region due to suffering and persecution as a result of their faith in Christ. Many of these had now been distributed to other parts of the known world. So when James says in chapter 1, verse 2, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials,' there is a context that that phrase fits into. There is a story that that phrase fits into. It's not just that James is sitting alone by himself in a room somewhere, and he's thinking, what would be a really good book to write? What do I think people might need to hear? You know what? There's probably some people who were suffering and going through trials, so let me go through and write some things to that crowd. That's not it. He is addressing a very specific setting and a specific purpose. These are believers, many of which were facing extreme persecution and job loss and rejection by family, prison. Some had even experienced death. And he wants to give them confidence. He wants to give them hope. He, he wants to try to encourage them. There is a rawness about this letter. It, it's a, a rawness in the sense of there's almost a desperation when he's talking through it because these are people that they are literally living the very things he's talking about in that moment. So think about it like this. If your life 
or if your family's life is under attack because of your faith, think of the questions that you might have. God, is it worth it? Should I keep my convictions to myself if that's going to save my children? God, do I keep following this path? Like this is a very new thing at that point. The, the idea of Christ and Messiah and all of these beliefs coming together, that was a very new concept. So some of them wondered, is it true? Is it right? Do we keep moving forward? What if I lose everything because of my walk with God? Those are the problems that this crowd faced. So what does James do? He comes out the gate strong. Here's what he's saying. As a bondservant of God, someone who has no rights or privileges, to those who are my brothers and sisters that are suffering because of your faith, don't give up, don't quit, don't lose hope. Instead, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. In other words, you got to reframe this moment, consider it joy, and then notice this next word, Knowing, all oh, that word is so key, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Why is that word key? When you're going through trials, there's a lot of unknowns. You don't know why you're there. You don't know when it's going to end. You don't know when God's going to answer your prayers. You don't know what's happening next week. You're just walking through unknown, unknown, unknown. And James comes out and says, I got something for you to know. Here it is. Know that. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Then he says, and let endurance have its perfect result. So you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What you're going through is preparing you for what God has ahead of you. Nothing is wasted in this. On the other side of endurance is the spiritual maturity that you desire. Listen. That was a good word for them, and that's a really good word for us. I was speaking with a man a little over a week ago, and you just got to give me a moment to kind of frame this out. Speaking with a man about the economy, about markets, about inflation, it's, it's no surprise that there's a lot of people who've been struggling this last year. Struggling many times, people who are on fixed incomes or they're living off of retirement accounts right now. And I mean, it's, it's taken a hit. And as we were talking about this, we were describing the fact that over the course of time, over decades, there's been dips and there's been turns and there's been changes that have happened in the market. But historically, the charts just kind of continue to keep creeping up. And a part of that has created almost a financial laziness. It's almost been like people just threw money at the S&P 500 for a number of years and making 6 to 8% return on an investment was not that big of a deal. It was expected. But when the markets are turning and things are changing, there's a lot of people that are not prepared and a lot of people who are getting taken by surprise. I want you to hold that thought and bridge it into what we're dealing with in this text. Just as much as many people are not prepared for a changing economy, many Christians are not prepared for a changing culture. Christians in America have largely lived in a bubble of freedom and ease 
and blessing to the point it has made us spiritually lazy. We are not prepared to live in a country when our faith actually cost us something. Last couple of years, I think a lot of people have gotten a wake-up call on this. They got a wake-up call because their church was maybe closed, or they experienced government overreach in some way, or their convictions have been trampled, or their beliefs have been mocked. There's been many people in the last several years that have lost jobs and benefits and financial security because of their convictions as believers. There used to be a time when the motto was more of separation of church and state, or there were some who were saying, we don't want God in the public schools, or God mentioned in the public square. But listen, there is a new and a growing aggressiveness towards the things of God. Anymore, the mindset is rapidly becoming those who do not support and espouse a godless worldview are now unwelcome. They are hateful, and they are seen as a threat. Now the mindset is, you can't work here and believe that. You can't attend here and share that. You can't hold those beliefs and be a part of this group. Our world is rapidly changing, and here's my concern. We're not ready. We're not ready for what that looks like. In the last 20 years, Instead of the church taking the time to train up a generation of disciples who will fearlessly live on mission with God, we entertained them to death. If we even preached the gospel, it was often watered down. We were serving up Christianity light with a third less guilt because we didn't want to offend people. We hope that our church affiliation and our morality training and filled schedules would somehow produce mature disciples on the other side. It did not. And now we're at a crisis point. Now more than ever, we need the church to be the church. Now more than ever, we need men to be godly men and to lead their families well. We need women to be godly women and to shine as salt and light in a dark world. We need college students who are infiltrating campuses and trained in the gospel. And they are mature in their faith and they're not just there by name only. We need that happening. Listen, we cannot afford another 20 years of lazy pulpits and sleepy pews and sermonettes on Sunday. We need mature believers. We need people who are going to be about the mission of God. We need men and women filled with the Holy Ghost and with wisdom. We need to be on our knees begging God that he would help us to redeem the time and redeem sometimes what we gave up in the past. Here's my prayer. God, help us to be believers who walk in integrity. Help us to live on mission with you. God, give us a generation, listen, give us a generation of leather-lunged preachers of the gospel who have fire in their bones, an understanding of the gospel, and are willing to live their lives on mission with God. Give us prayer warriors who understand the power of prayer and the importance of intercession 
Help us to be a church where people are saying, if you want to be trained as a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be a part of Sherwood. Help us to be a church that is training and equipping a generation to change the world. If not, what are we doing? If we're not going to be about the mission of God, what are we doing? If God gives us three more years, ten more years, 30 more years before Jesus comes. My prayer is that we'll be able to look back and say we didn't waste a moment. That we not only understood the stakes, but we were about the mission of God. The stakes are too high. The more I study the book of James, the more how I see it is so critical to the world that we are living in right now in the state of the church in America. The more I study the book of James, listen, the more I believe in the coming years, his words will be more and more precious to believers who find their lives and their convictions and their beliefs under attack. His words to us will be like what it is to the first century. So what do you do with a message like this? And by the way, this is the introduction. Well, we've not even gotten into the stuff he's addressing. That's what I'm saying. Like, I could have stopped with James, but we're just, we're going through. What do you do with this? Ask God from the very beginning to help you see what it is that he's wanting to address in your life. Ask God through this series to help you live with integrity. It might be that in this series you recognize that for a period of time you've been dialing it in from home and not living on mission with God. Ask God to change that. We need God to do a work in and through us. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we recognize that apart from what your spirit does in this place, then, Lord, we are we're trying our best, but it's not making the eternal impact that it needs to have. So, God, we're asking that you would do an incredible work. God, help us to be spiritually mature saints. Help us to be about the mission of making disciples. God, I pray that as we look back over the things that we do, we can look back and see, here's why we did it, and it's founded right there in the Word. Lord, I'm praying that 10 years from now and 20 years from now, if you tarry, that we will be able to see individuals around the world that are living a salt and light. They are leading well. They are living on mission. God, I'm praying that you are going to raise up another generation of vocational ministry leaders. Lord, there might be, in this room right now, there might be a group of pastors that you are calling in this room right now. God, I pray that you'd put fire in their hearts. God, there might be another generation of missionaries in the room right now. Lord, I pray that you would get them on the right path, and Lord, may we equip and send as only you can establish.
God, we need you to do what only you can do. We'll be grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand. Our pastors and some of their wives will be at the end of the aisles. The altar will be open. There will be other counselors who are here. However it is that God might be working in your heart, I just encourage you to respond in obedience to him.